Hello and welcome to Casual Science. This is your host, Babak Hashemi. Today we're going to be chatting with Daniela Bardalas Gagliofi, who is an astrophysics researcher at the University of California, San Diego. She studies brown dwarfs, so objects that are um, similar to Jupiter, but these things are normally about 10 to 100 times the, the mass of Jupiter, so big stellar objects, but they're not quite large enough to become stars. So they don't convert uh, hydrogen to helium, which is the main kind of mechanism that drives stars to be uh, bright, to shine brightly. So she's working on classifying these objects, and um, to do that, she does lots of observations. And the hope is that uh, by understanding basically the, the number and type of these brown dwarfs, um, she can, in the future, hope to say something about how uh, stars form in general, so some of the details of, of stellar formation. Specifically, she looks to, to understand how many brown dwarf binaries there are, so how many types of systems, or how often do you get two of these brown dwarfs together in a, in a system, and that somehow is, is a key to unlocking some details about stellar evolution. So this is a really interesting topic. It's a very big topic, uh, and Daniela is a really uh, funny girl and just a, a bright person as well. So I hope you enjoy the conversation, and uh, as always, thank you for listening. This is Bobak here. Today I'm with uh, Daniela. Holy shit, Daniela! How do you say your last name? <laughs> Bardales Gagliufi. Bardales, Ga- say it again. Gagliufi. I'm with her. And, <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> I have you in my phone as Daniela Barnsley because that Why? was the best. <laughs> That was the the best American version oh God, I could get. Terrible. Okay. Uh, so how are you doing today, Daniela? I'm pretty good. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for being uh, on the show today. Yeah, of course. So, uh, could you tell me just a little bit about where you're from, first of all? Because I think it's sure. pretty different for most people. So Daniela is in astrophysics at UCSD, yes. uh, and she's another graduate student, but she's not from. San Diego, where are you from, Daniela? Um, yeah, well, my last name is actually complicated because I'm from Peru. From Peru, yes. Nice. So those are both um, Spanish sounding last names, I guess. And um, I am origi- originally from Lima, and I grew up there until I was like, I was there until I was around 20, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I finished high school and then I started college there. I did college for three years before I transferred to MIT. Mm-hmm. That's where I did my undergrad. That's where I actually graduated. Um, and the reason why I transferred is because I started actually studying environmental engineering in Peru. But because studying physics is not, is not a career that you can, you know, really make a living out of. 
Interesting. It so, just in Peru, in Peru, because here in third world countries. If if that's uh-huh. true, Daniela, yeah. I'm gonna have to change my career very soon <laughs> because I I did not know about this. This is just in Peru, right? Um. Yeah. No. It's physics is hard. Well, in a lot of third world countries, okay. like Peru, especially. Uh, at least that's what I know of. Would you? Is Peru is no... a third world country? Yes. Really? Yeah. Um. Yeah. The poverty rate is around 30, 40 percent. Wow. Uh, and. No, 30% is the extreme poverty, like people who live in a dollar a day. And I think, I don't what, I don't know exactly what they call poverty, mm-hmm. but uh, but that's, I would say, around 40 Did that affect you growing up? Did you see um, that? I was middle class, so I, not not as much, I mean, we, we were in a family where like we didn't have excesses or anything like that, you know, it was very middle right. class, like we had what we needed and that was good. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, no, I was definitely privileged in that sense. I went to a private school, which is more... Um, it's not like here where it's outrageous you right, know, to, to go to private school, school sure. is crazy expensive. Yeah. Um, it wasn't like that, but mm-hmm. uh, I did go to a private school and um, and it was actually really, it was a really good experience. Like the teachers, it felt like a big family, you know, it wasn't like a huge school or sure. anything like that. They really, they really help every student um, sort of like figure out what they like, right. you know, and go for it. So I, I really appreciate that. How did you start getting into to physics or I guess, the, so, so in undergrad you did just straight physics, not astrophysics, right? Uh, yes. And at MIT I did physics. Okay. When I was in Peru, I was doing engineering. Engineering. Okay. But, um, yeah. So what made you get into the sciences and then also what made you change mm-hmm. from kind of uh, an engineering background or an engineering focus so, into a science focus? Yes, uh, that's good. Um, I I always liked math, you know, I was mm-hmm. always good at math. It always like came natural to me, much more than history and other, okay. or other humanities. Right. Uh, and that was in, in school, in like high school. Yeah. Uh, but then when I... My school actually had one class. They started that when we started um, secondary school. That's like the last five years. Mm-hmm. And um, it was called research. You didn't have any any class hours. Okay. And, um, and you just had to pick a topic, had to be accepted by the school. Okay. And then, um, and then do a research study on it. Okay. No experimentation or anything like right. that. You know, I mean, whatever like, you could afford. Exactly, gathering information. Yeah. But people would choose like Shakira and you had to write, you know, like a <laughs> solid biography. So that's, you know, I swear to God, <laughs> that was kind of fun. Okay. Um, and uh, and I, that was my opportunity to choose astronomy topics because I always had it, I, I always thought it was really interesting right. and, and it was never, it was never a subject touched in class, you know, okay. so... Um, so yeah, and then I think by on my senior year. Do you remember year, what you what you did? One year I did Mars. One year I did. Um, one year I did the sail. I actually I switched to Shakira. How many times did you? I didn't Shakira? do Shakira. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I did Cleopatra one time okay. because I that's, wanted to try something cool. history yeah, wise, and um, yeah, it was okay. But um, <laughs> one year, I, really interesting. Uh, it was about the Shroud of Turing. The what of Shroud of Turing. You know, have I've you heard of it? It's now. supposed to be the relic um, from when Jesus was like wrapped around, you know, when he was dead for like three days, okay. and um, and that left a mark on the uh, supposedly, <laughs> you know, it left a mark of his body on the on, on the, the shroud. S- so shroud is isn't a shroud? The shroud like is a... like a long sheet. Okay. Where right. you're wrapped around when you're dead. And, um, and I thought it was really interesting because it was like, it's like a religious miracle and okay. it's also, you know, like a scientific m- mystery. Right. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the school isn't happy with my conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just put it there. It was very Catholic. 
Um, and then uh, and then my senior year, I wanted to do a study about black holes. Okay. So um, very cool. Yeah, actually, the school is completely opposed to it <laughs> because they thought I was going to get to the point where we're like, oh, we don't need to, we don't need to do that. But um, uh, but yeah, so I did the study about black holes, and um, actually, one of the main books that I read for that was Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. Nice. And that book changed my life. Really? It's, yeah, because it was I, I started reading about it, and it was like. I didn't know there was a job, you know? Right. I don't see astrophysicists walking around Peru. You, yeah, <laughs> I mean, even myself, I remember mm-hmm. growing up, I had a lot of trouble finding, uh, basically, you know, I remember going to like Barnes and Nobles or whatever, the bookstores, yeah. and I was interested in physics, I was interested in astronomy, but I could never really find outside of, I think I found Carl Sagan's uh, mm-hmm. Cosmos book, Yeah. Uh, and I kind of leafed through that a little bit. Okay. But I, I remember having a lot of hard time really just like, there, there didn't seem to be such a, a great way for a young person to get kind of engaged mm-hmm. in, in actual, uh, you know, I guess you can't get engaged in cutting edge science as, yeah. as a young person, but to, to at least see what are the questions that, that researchers are asking and, and what is it that we think we know and, and especially these big things like the Cosmos and, yeah. and Stephen Hawking's books. Like those, those are so cool. Yeah. Uh, have you read every history of I have time? not read it, no. It's excellent. I'll give it to you. It's so good. <laughs> Uh, I actually really like the book because I feel like it has many levels. It is for general audiences, and you can read it without knowing any physics. Mm-hmm. You learn, you know, like twenty percent of it. Right. But, um, because, as a physicist, you yeah. Know, as a physicist, more, you learn sure. a lot more, and it's presented in such a beautiful, like easy to read, straightforward mm-hmm. way. I really like it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, so, Hawking is is, yeah. uh, is <laughs> quite a quite a story, quite a researcher, yeah. and uh, yeah. it's 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 really very very impressive story in general and i mean uh i don't know i I, i'm very kind of the the cosmology and stuff have a very special place in my heart i guess (laughs) for a lot of physicists i'm Uh sure these sorts of big questions um and you know he's one of the there's not a lot of people who really work or kind of have the the chutzpah to work on (laughs) theoretical (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. to work because like you know there's very there's very little data um in those fields you know Mm -hmm. and only you know, kind of recently have we been finding or, or getting our uh, experimental equipment, our detectors and stuff, uh, to a point where they can really help us say absolutely anything yeah. about cosmology, you yeah. know. Uh, you know, astrophysics is one thing where, I mean, I guess not a lot of people understand this distinction. And in fact, I'm not, not sure if I, <laughs> as far as I understand it, you call something astrophysics when you're studying, you know, the physics of um, stuff that goes on in the sky or in, yeah. in space. Actually, in Spanish, it's easy to explain. Astro means any celestial body. Right. So then astrophysics right. is literally the physics of celestial bodies. Whereas cosmology is sort of the physics Origins of, the of the universe as the whole. Sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's more about what started the universe. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. cool. Then you you read <laughs> uh-huh. Hawking's book and you decided, I'm going to go to MIT. Uh, and no, and well, <laughs> at that point, I decided I really... Um, I really liked what I was reading, and it was it was one of those books that I couldn't put down. So mm-hmm. I I also didn't know that was a career, mm-hmm. and that's when I got interested in that. But of course, I can't I really can't pursue astrophysics as a career as a research career in Peru. So um, mm-hmm. so at the time I was sixteen when I was graduating high school, and my parents were like, oh, 
you should study something else. Yeah. You know, like engineering or... Uh, <laughs> waste your and, time uh, with that science. Yeah, uh. yeah pretty much. Uh, I understand their point of view, you know. It's it, like, no, it's, it's, it's practically reasonable, especially it's as you get into the more uh-huh. like things like theoretical cosmology. It's, yeah, it's really it's, it's hard to, uh, hard to yeah. justify a lot of practical mm-hmm. benefit uh, yeah. uh, from doing such a thing. Um, and then, and so I, I studied engineering for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and then my school went on strike. Mm-hmm. The professors went on strike. It was a nationwide strike. Um, so I lost about two semesters due to that because it was mm. started strike like two weeks before finals. <laughs> so, you know, to get most attention. Um, I'm sure they had their problems, but that was extremely inconvenient for me. <laughs> it was, yeah. you know, trying to get a degree. Uh, this was three years in. College back home is five years. Okay. So I wasn't yet there yet, you know, like ready to graduate, but I was on my way. And, um, I know. I mean, so many of my friends just like took this whole thing as like vacation. They moved to Mangore, so an area that's like summer all year long. Okay. Like literally, <laughs> they moved there the for like six months on the beach. Um, and I, and oh God, I was so frustrated. I couldn't <laughs> deal with that. So I started researching, like I knew English, so I started researching about going abroad for studying. I see. My dad very clearly put it as like, you're not leaving the country unless you're going somewhere good. So I dropped my research on all the universities that exist in the world and focused <laughs> on like, I'm applying to MIT and Harvard and, and Cornell and something else. Right. And, um, and that's what I did. <laughs> I just applied. Um, and, yeah. and it worked out. It was great. It was the, best, awesome. the best thing that ever happened to me. That's great. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's uh that's I, I went to Penn State, it was good. It was not the best thing that ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> Penn State is really cool. School. It was fun. I had I had a yeah. good time. So uh so tell me more about your your research interests these days. Uh mm-hmm. so you are, like I said, kind of in, in astrophysics and what, what are you what are you studying? Um yeah, so I actually I study brown dwarfs, okay. which are they call them failed stars. Basically, when you form a star, you normally have a cloud of um, dust, ice, molecules, right. things like that. And, um, and then it clumps together into a star and becomes a star the moment that the nuclear reactions in the core right. start producing photons that radiate, radiate outwards. Right. So then that counteracts the gravity that right. tries to and pull you need the star sort of... together you know, the, the idea of a critical mass of, of, of dust in order to mm-hmm. have a kind of enough pressure to get the fusion to happen. Yes, right. yeah, exactly. And that that's a really important point because what if you form an object that just doesn't have that Quite much critical mass? mass? Right. Exactly. So uh, that critical mass happens around 8% of the solar mass, of okay. the mass of the sun. Okay. Um, but that's on the formed object, not on the cloud. Star formation is okay. not very efficient. Okay. So actually you lose so a lot of So you need more than you you know, 8% A lot more, okay. yeah. I think, I think it's... The, no, I'm not sure about the efficiency, actually. <laughs> but um, yeah. Uh, so it's about 8% of the mass of the sun. And then this object that forms no longer has any nuclear, is no longer producing any uh, photons in their nucleus to, um, in order to counteract the gravity. So it sort of accommodates itself into about the, into an object that's about the size of Jupiter. Okay. So it's really dense if you think about it. If you take 8% mass of the sun, which is about eight, times the mass of Jupiter okay. and then put it all in the Jupiter radius. I see. It's pretty compact. So why why is Jupiter not a brown dwarf then? That is an excellent question <laughs> and we are not sure. Really? Yeah. I think, um, so some ideas are, well, Jupiter formed around the star, but that's not definite. 
Okay. Uh, it, it has to be with the way that Jupiter formed compared to the way a Brandor formed, and that's still a big question. We have a good idea of how planets form, which is around the disk from the star that is also forming. Like okay. We assume that the age of the sun is about the same age as all of the other planets. Okay. But there are some more intricate details as to, for example, why do you think that all the rocky planets are so close to the Earth and all the more gaseous planets are farther away? Mm -hmm. So um, so there's some dynamics going on where you Doesn't can a lot of strip that has off to gas, for example, to make an atmosphere or not. Mm -hmm. um, sorry to interrupt you. The, uh, the rocky planets that are close to the Earth, they, have, they can have atmospheres, but their atmospheres are not mostly hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Hydrogen is very, is very light. So right, then it'll right. be the first thing to get stripped off. Right, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, so the, yeah, the, the, the question I was going to ask was, I was under the impression that the rocky planets are closer to the sun due to the fact that, I guess, I'm not sure if the sun is kind of one of these first generation stars, but I, yeah, I assume it's, it's not. Yeah, it's not. Uh, so, so mm -hmm. you know, when you get uh, any sort of supernova or just mm -hmm. uh, a star kind of excreting any sort of material, yeah. um, obviously the heavier the material, mm -hmm. the easier it's going to be or the, the harder it's going to be for it to travel very yes. far just because the the kind of you know, heavier things tend to bump into more yeah. things and lose uh mm -hmm. lo lose their momentum uh but then the lighter things like the gases mm -hmm. can end up very far away so does that not correctly um kind of explain why we would expect rockier planets and stuff to be closer to the sun i think um I think that's a part of it, but not the it's most. It's not the whole picture. Yeah, not probably the most important um, reason. Yeah. So we're not. Uh, so basically, we're not a hundred percent sure why. I'm not hundred. You're not hundred. <laughs> 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 okay, fair enough. I think people have theories about this. Okay, um, okay. It's funny because Randorfs are used a lot as planet analogs, as, okay. as, uh, <laughs> as giant planets like Jupiter, but. Um, but I'm not 100% sure because I don't actually study blood <laughs> Okay, okay, yeah. fair enough, sorry. Yeah, totally. uh, but cool, cool. So so we're not, but we are not totally sure why Jupiter, something that is about the right, I guess, volume. Size. Yeah, uh, it's definitely not the right mass, though. Right, it's not the right mass. So yeah. it's not the right density. Right, and but that would be, and that's, that's basically the only thing that makes something a, a brown dwarf that is of the volume, you know, of the size of Jupiter, mm -hmm. is if it was denser, you would call it a brown dwarf, but since it's not as dense as yes. it's, it's eight times less yeah. dense than it should be, um, it's it's not called a brown yeah, dwarf. Yeah, that's true actually. And we observe sometimes objects that are just about the right size, but we if we can't know its its mass, we just don't know if it was a planet that was ejected from its planetary system right. or a brown dwarf that formed into it. Interesting. So um, that's a fine line. Yeah. In fact, the the line between brown dwarfs and stars is well defined. You know, there's some mass cut off and at a certain metallicity, but if you look at the difference between brandors and planets, there's no clear cut. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. The IAU actually redefined, the International Astronomy Union, Astronomical Union, uh, redefined the concept of brandors when they had to kick Pluto out of the solar okay. system. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> yeah, so they had to redefine planets, and they also had to redefine brandors because, you know, they're sort of in the middle. Alright, it's mm -hmm. just, uh, now that we're, we talked about Pluto, isn't, isn't Pluto smaller than, than the moon? Or so I'm not sure if it's smaller than the moon. I think it's about half the radius of the Earth, so okay. I think it's slightly bigger than the moon. But it's very much way smaller than all the other planets okay. that are all the other planets actually. Is I mean, much smaller. The than idea the for a planet is mm -hmm. that it, you know, quote unquote, I guess, gravitationally dominates its orbit, right? Isn't isn't that it's, the... that? It's three points: is that it gravitationally dominates its orbit, that it um, that it's massive enough to be round by itself. Mm -hmm. you know from okay, its own sure. self-gravity and um 
And what's the third, third one? I think that has to be associated with a star. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so the reason that we call Pluto not a planet is basically because of the the fact that there are other objects that are about the same size as it, and it's exactly orbit, yeah so it the point came to where either you call this nine hundred things planets okay. or you call them something <laughs> just, else. Just, okay, fair enough. <laughs> you make a real look in the, in the in Earth where okay. only eight planets. Right, it's right. <laughs> fair enough. And then we start talking about proto planets, and we can have yeah. our children memorize another forty thousand yeah. uh, things yeah. and hate school even more. Uh, Cool. So what makes, why are we studying brown dwarfs in 2016? What, uh, you know, there, we could have been studying them in 1930, perhaps, if we, I don't know if we knew that they existed Mm -hmm. back then. Um, Or, you know, so so what what has happened, you know, whenever somebody, whenever there's a piece of scientific research going on, there's normally basically some narrative that leads you to that research. You know, what, what are, what questions are we trying to answer that we think brown dwarfs, um, kind of give us a uh, a lens into? So right now, if you were NASA, I would tell you, well, they look a lot like giant planets. And okay. That's how <laughs> <laughs> you get your funding. Um, so Brownlers actually were not known in 1930. They okay. were theorized around... Keep saying fifty years ago, but I think it's two thousand sixteen, maybe a little bit more. Okay. I think ours were in nineteen sixties. Sixties or fifties. Something okay. like that. Um, they were. That's when they first theorized. Um, and you know, that was first when uh, theories realized that there's got to be a mass cutoff mm-hmm. where you couldn't uh, fuse hydrogen anymore. Right. And, but then they weren't discovered until about twenty twenty five years ago. Okay. Observed. So um, so the the that big difference was because um, I actually don't know when infrared telescopes started being built but uh, but these objects are bred in the infrared okay only the very most massive ones you can see in the optical right but, because um, they don't since they're not fusing hydrogen they don't actually produce any of their uh, they don't produce any light in kind of the visible spectrum because they're not doing hydrogen or I guess hydrogen fusion doesn't necessarily produce photons in the no in fact hydrogen fusion produces gamma rays right yeah but, much, uh, much higher. but by, the time by the time they get to the out, sun yeah they're, it's they're visible. diffused enough and it's the I guess the the outer layer of uh-huh. material in the sun that actually is producing the visible light. Uh, no, they actually come from the center of the sun, the photons. Um, well, yeah, the, that's where the fusion is going. But going the on. color of light that we see... It's just because it has... So every time the sun is so dense that every time the photon just hits... You know, it's going to hit a lot of stuff in its way out. Right. It, it takes, I think, 100,000 years to get to the surface mm. of the sun. So by then, I don't know how many times it's... Um, Free path, right? How many times it's been you know, absorbed? So it but hits a lot of stuff. Each time it's been absorbed and mm-hmm. re-emitted. Yeah. The the re-emission is basically like the the type of photon that gets kicked out mm-hmm. comes from the 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 property of the the material that it was absorbed into, right? Because yeah. it depends on what the energy levels uh-huh. between the the molecules of that that yeah. atom are. So I mean, the brown dwarfs basically so, they're not. Yeah, the brown dwarfs. I mean, yeah, the brown dwarfs don't don't emit any light and visible sometimes when they're really massive they may have some okay uh some light and visible so the the point to take away is that brown doors are 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 born with um at least enough mass to barely fuse hydrogen so some of them will be able to fuse fuse hydrogen for some period of time but not throughout their lives and mm-hmm. that's the main difference with stars i see okay so when actually when you observe a, uh, an object that's very young 
and it has just around that much mass, you can tell if that's going to become a star or a brown dwarf. Okay. So you won't know until a few million years after. <laughs> <laughs> just got to keep looking. See, it's amazing yeah. because these sorts of, you know, y you can talk so much about these brown dwarfs and, mm -hmm. you know, what sorts of data do you really have? on these brown dwarfs you know you can't you can't go outside and, and look at a brown dwarf and be like oh yeah you know sometimes this mm -hmm. is fusing hydrogen sometimes this isn't yeah. how are you you know this is basically i guess the the mm -hmm. kind of purpose of your research right is, is to try to help us yes. get these picture this kind of intuitive picture of what's going on with these these brown dwarfs right um yes and actually to to combine it to your last question which i didn't really answer um <laughs> so yeah the, the kind of data that we get is either images or um or spectrum Spectra, or that's about it actually. You can do a lot of stuff with images and spectra, right? And yeah, that's definitely. how we, you know, process our data and then analyze it. And so you basically mm -hmm. you know where. So, so are you the one who is identifying these brown dwarfs, or are you the ones who are after some other people have identified brown dwarfs? Yeah. You guys go and kind of study and do more. So I personally, uh, I don't identify any new ones. Okay. Um, people. So there are several surveys that have basically a telescope that's in the space and then mm -hmm. and then the, it goes over the like it takes pictures of the whole night sky right. several times a night um, and then in the end they're all these giant uh, collaborations what they do is they provide astronomers on earth with um, with you know a whole new list of we just discover all these millions mm -hmm. of objects mm -hmm. um, what I'm interested in doing is because I'm interested in the question of formation I'm interested in looking at what's the binary fraction of brown dwarfs. The okay. binary fraction is just a ratio of how many brown dwarfs you find in binary systems and how many right. you find alone. Right. And um, and this is kind of timely right now just because it has been... Uh, so as I said, brown dwarfs weren't discovered uh, observationally until... only They were discovered only 20 years ago observationally. Mm -hmm. So ever since then, we've been actually going pretty far. We've done, I feel like this, there's been a lot of science done in the last 20 years. You know, mm -hmm. there's like, you just like have this new object that you just observe. Right, you know? yeah, So yeah. That's, that's pretty, that, that was pushing the limits of the telescopes at the time. Absolutely. And, um, and now we've been studying a lot about these objects and we're getting to learn about their atmospheres, which is really interesting because we're learning about atmospheres of a star that's cool enough to show molecules. You know, the wow, spectra yeah. of these objects doesn't look like a star, like a brighter star, because um, a brighter star would just look like um, like a black body radiation sure, sure. Um, curve. Right, and I guess you're, since you're saying you're seeing these like spectral mm -hmm. lines. Yeah, so we actually see absorption lines from the brown dwarf more than much more than emission. So from the brown dwarf mm -hmm. atmosphere. Yes. Interesting. So yeah. we're. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's normally yeah. I don't know I've never mm -hmm. thought of stars as having atmospheres. Exactly. Yeah. And. Um, and then it turns out there's a there's a smooth transition. So do you actually um, what? do do you call we call brown dwarf stars right? I wouldn't be if I went to an astronomer and said a brown dwarf is a star, they wouldn't hit me and call me uh, <laughs> stupid. I think they wouldn't, but okay. I think because they're not that <laughs> depends popular, on the astronomer. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> but I think because they're not that popular, people will th you know if it's the first time you've ever heard of brown dwarfs, you have mm -hmm. to explain them in right related to stars. Right. Right. If um. I would never say stars at a Brandorf conference. I call them Brandors, okay. and stars has a whole other meaning. Okay. But colloquially, yes, okay. you can say stars and then explain the subtlety. If anybody cares <laughs> to listen yeah. to you, they haven't yeah. walked away yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But yeah, you you have to. I mean, you can't even see it with your eyes. They're infrared, right? Right. So there's yeah. like no human idea yeah, of what yeah, is yeah. this. You What's have to explain them in relation to the sun. So the the main question <laughs> you're trying to answer is basically looking at the this sort of multiplicity fraction. That's exactly the word. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. So we look at the multiplicity. We want to find the multiplicity fraction. So for that, I'm trying to look for regimes of binary systems that haven't been uh, observed until now. And um, yes, and so over the years, people have been. At first, they were just collecting objects. You know, they were just collecting Brandorfs that because the first one yeah. was found twenty years ago. So then the they first started, step, right? Yeah, exactly. you need to they started, figure uh, combining out where them. to look to get data. Yeah, right. And then once they had enough, as in twenty or thirty right. spectra of these, they realized they could orbit and this a took spectra. Thirty years. Essentially. This took. Like there, there were there were people who basically their whole career in yeah. science has just been, has been you know, identifying where they are, not even doing any sort of analysis on them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my my advisor's advisor mm -hmm. is one of the people who who does that. Mm -hmm. He identifies. He and that's a job. At, yeah, that's a job that's that a I job. would I would not have known about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um. So what happens is that I mean, at first after the first one was discovered, they started discovering more and more. And when they had around like 30 or 50, they decided to put them on, um, to organize them by spectral type, which okay. is just spectral by... Spectral type just means the type of light, the, like the spectrum of light. That so comes. yeah, so they look at, so this was done actually, the idea for this is from, um, you must know the story from Harvard in the 1900s, at the beginning of the 1900s, a bunch of women got together. And at, at that time, astronomers had been classifying stars pretty much using the entire alphabet. Okay. You know, like, oh, that looks like an A, that looks like a B, that looks like a C. And then, and all these classes were, they, they didn't make any sense, you know? Um, so then a group of women at Harvard, because they weren't allowed at the time, I think, to, uh, to actually be part of the university. Oh. Yeah, so there were um, astronomers as well, you know? Well, there were, like, I think at the time, wives of professors and things like that, because they... Well, that's how you had to be an astronomer back then, yes. you had to marry. Um, the, world, the world has gone further than that. But um, they got together and they realized that the classification was stupid. And so they put it in order, you know? And you just, to, in, in order to put it in order. So at that point, the easy, the first step is to just like look at all the spectra and see that their shape changes, you know? That see, there okay. is a sequence, just but just by looking at the shape of the spectrum. I see. So it has nothing to do with mass. Um, it's, you're looking at no, the spectrum. No, and that's tricky with brown doors because well, you don't know. It might be but, related to mass at the end of the day, but as far as what they were considering. Yeah, right, it's actually were, related to temperature. Okay. And so. Um, so then they organized them by shape, and then they realized it is related to temperature, and that was for massive stars. That's Word. why the current classification is O B A, O B A F G K M. <laughs> you see, and it has nothing to do with the alphabet anymore. Mm. So um, well, those are something, something to do with the alphabet. And so they did the same thing with Brandors. They okay. once they got enough spectral of them, mm. they started. They started um, making spectral types. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So the spectral types that we use are M, that is shared with the stars. That was the last one I mentioned from stars. Mm -hmm. M, L, T, and not Y are the coolest ones. Nice. They're coolest about, as in the most interesting and the most and, interesting uh, and also the coolest. The <laughs> They're they about five hundred Kelvin. Okay. Can you imagine a whole star? That's five hundred Kelvin. The whole thing, like all the way the through. The whole thing. Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, it's affected temperature, so of course it's hotter in the core. I okay. Assume. Okay. But. Um, <laughs> But no, but it, it's uh, an atmosphere above 500 Kelvin. Mm -hmm. I mean, our atmosphere is still almost 300, you know? It's right, yeah, that's true. By, yeah. It's a basically mm -hmm. almost a, 
I guess they they have hydrogen there too. If they get yeah, some oxygen, hydrogen. we might get a, a brown brown dwarf sea or or something. <laughs> <like that. laughs> um, they have silicate clouds. Okay. And other and so we can at least make uh okay, metals from the sun. Yeah. <laughs> we can make computers, yeah, <laughs> from the air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you can breathe it. <laughs> so well, you know, it's, it's got some benefits. Yeah. So. <laughs> um. So yeah. So that's how they started. So, okay, so I, I was going to say, too, that maybe the first 10 years of Brunner Science was identifying them, characterizing them as a whole right. in classes. And then after that, um, we started looking at populations, started looking at how they form. And one of the statistics that, tell, that can point us to how they form is the binary fraction. I see. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So what is your kind of day-to-day Day to day. Being, yeah, what is coding it? So, in Python all day. <laughs> Sometimes writing in English, but okay. mostly writing in coding. Um, so, what are you coding? Are you coding analysis? Analysis uh, mostly. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, my day to day, as you said before, I get spectra from these objects. In fact, I was observer last night. <laughs> okay. So, you have to observe. And what, is that, what does that entail? Observing at night? That means that I am connected to a computer okay. that is um, connected to a computer that that actually moves the telescope okay, in wow. Hawaii, which is the one I use, one of the ones I use, the uh, infrared telescope facility from NASA. And um, and then I, I ask my telescope operator to move to a coordinate, and once we're there, I, I take a spectrum of that okay. object. So, uh, and then the spectrum that I get, I have to reduce, you know, I have to subtract the Earth's atmosphere, all that kind of thing. Okay. And then after that, um, the Finally, the science data that I that I have is um, is a spectrum, which is um, you know it just tells you how much flux there is per wavelength. So um, I've been saying the word <laughs> around, but uh, but yeah, that's what it means. And and then we get to learn about the absorption lines at each right. point. And for example, how deep they are tells you about what kind of object it is. Uh, I'm particularly interested in the objects that have a spectrum that has that is somewhat peculiar in a sense, because I'm looking at hotter objects, and okay. I know how their spectrum should look like, but um, but there are parts that show, uh, for example, in these hotter atmospheres, having methane, I, is having methane as a compound molecule mm-hmm. is it's difficult, sorry, because, um, because methane ends up being, it, it's more of a complicated molecule to just live, in those hotter atmospheres mm-hmm. and then at those lower pressures. Right. Um, so methane you actually find on the cooler type of brown dwarf. But if we do see methane absorption in one of the hotter ones, then mm-hmm. that indicates that that actually is an unresolved binary. I see. You know, that indicates that methane is not coming from the brighter object because it would be impossible for ah, the to actually okay. be there. So seeing the signature of methane is kind of one of the smoking guns for you have a, you have a binary. Yes. You have a binary of a specific type, that it's either an M or an L. Do you remember I said M, L, T, Y? I, I, I remembered all of those oh, letters sure. perfectly. <laughs> uh, what I mean is that it's, uh, it means that it's a specific <laughs> type of cold secondary right. to that brighter, hotter right, sure, primary. Sure, sure. That's yeah. super cool stuff. Yeah, it is cool. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> cool stars. Um, and so the, and the interesting thing about those systems is that actually, because they form together, you know, they have to cool about, they cool about the same rate. Um, and one is more massive than the other, but then they must have formed right around that boundary of 8% solar mass because one of them managed to cool down all the way to 
to a uh, brown dwarf that actually hosts methane, well, the other one stayed hot, you know? And, and we always assume that binary systems are formed together or coeval, mm-hmm. co-spatial. So then, um, so then that's actually not a brown dwarf, brown dwarf binary, that's a star brown dwarf binary. Mm. So that's interesting. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Very <laughs> cool stuff. Well, mm-hmm. uh, it was very nice to chat with you, Daniela. Thank you so much for, for yeah, coming course, on to the show. And me. I hope uh, in 10 or 15 years I can uh, look up your name and it'll say on Wikipedia that you yeah. figured out <laughs> how brown dwarf formation works. And, uh, I'm going to need more time than that. Yeah, 15, okay.